Colossians. Colossians is a, a letter. It was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And I didn't tell you a lot about Colossae. Uh, So let me give you just a little bit of information. It may or may not help. Colossae is located in Asia Minor. So if you're taking a a picture, if you're looking at a picture of of the the Middle East area, there's the Mediterranean Sea, and it it butts up against what is uh, what we think of as the Holy Land. Uh, So you've got uh, Israel and Syria and those, those regions over there. But if you go north and then above the Mediterranean Sea, and this would be then going west of where we think of as the Holy Land, then the, above that is Asia Minor. And in fact, Paul wrote a lot of letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Jesus, Jesus wrote letters, uh, as we see recorded by John in the book of Revelation, to the churches in Asia Minor. So that was an important place and a, a huge area of Christian growth. Now, Paul, he mentions it here in the letter of Colossians. And when you're reading it, let me encourage you to do that. Take time. It's only four chapters. You can read it in an afternoon, super easy, just a few minutes. Maybe even go through it once a week and read it. Two reasons. Number one, it'll do you good. Number two, it'll do me good because you'll have the opportunity then to go, okay, I I recognize what he just said or I've read that or that's familiar to me. Or or maybe you've had a chance to come up and say, hey, listen, I didn't quite understand it like you communicated it. Hey, let's talk about that a little bit. That's a good thing. Well, Colossae was one of three cities mentioned here. One, the other is Laodicea. You may remember that from the book of Revelation. There's the the church to the letter, uh, a letter to the church in Laodicea from Jesus. And then there's another one, Hierapolis. And you go, okay, I know about Hierapolis. That's where Superman is from. No, that's Metropolis, a little different place. Now, the two cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, they were kind of uh, up-and-coming cities. They were wealthy, important cities. And Colossae had been. But it had fallen on hard times. The Walmart had opened up up the street. Everything had moved out to the interstate. In fact, a lot of stuff had moved to Laodicea. And so by the time Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae, he was writing to a church in kind of an insignificant, small, unimportant town. Now, here's the cool thing, because you can just read over that and go, okay, well, thanks for the background. But this was so neat. Because Laodicea was a blowing and going city. Hierapolis was a blowing and going city. Colossae was this kind of small town, an important, insignificant small town. And yet, God somehow chose, because if you'll read this, it also mentions that Paul wrote a letter to the church at Laodicea. And they were supposed to swap letters after they'd read them, because there was stuff in both that could benefit them. But God chose, in his wisdom and providence, to preserve the letter to the church, to the insignificant, unimportant small town, and not to preserve the letter to the blowing and glowing upcoming city. What does that tell us? I hope it says to you and and to me that God sometimes values things in a way that we don't value them. You may look at yourself and go, you know what? I really haven't made a huge impact in my life. I haven't made a difference in my life. When I compare myself to other people, 
I kind of feel like an insignificant, unimportant small town and everything's moved to the next town. I feel like they've got it going on and I maybe had it going on, but not anymore. Maybe I never had it going on to start with. But God often chooses that which man considers to be insignificant and unimportant. And God puts an emphasis on this because today, 2,000 years later, we are reading this letter to the church, to this little town, this, this church in this little town. We're reading this letter and it has blessed and, and encouraged and lifted up and challenged believers for two millennia. So if you're here feeling insignificant this morning, take courage. This letter itself ought to give you a sense that God has big plans sometimes for things that people consider to be insignificant. Now, as we go through this, I'll remind you once again that, uh, that the Apostle Paul was under arrest. He was in shackles, in chains, when he's writing this letter to the church in Colossae. And so today we're going to pick up and we're going to look at where we left off. We, we finished verse 8. We're going to start at verse 9. We're going to go through verse 14 this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And if you've got your Bibles, I'll encourage you to open it. We've printed it in your handout for you. We've got it up here on the screen, so you'll be able to find it somewhere. Remember, the book of Colossians is in the New Testament. Just keep going past the Gospels. Just keep going past uh, Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians. And keep moving over Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then you'll hit Colossians. You're in the right spot. First chapter, we're going to begin reading verse 9. And what I want to do is read through the entirety of it, and then we'll come back to verse 9 and kind of uh, examine it a little more closely. But here's what we have, beginning in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, help us to understand this word and to begin to apply it to our lives in ways we have never done before. And we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's, let's look then at verse 9 a little more closely. And so from the day we heard, again, heard about their faith, heard about their love, heard about their hope. If you go back, you can read about that in those verses that precede it. Since the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want to tell you this morning, there is no substitute for knowing the will of God. That's one of the things we struggle with as people. Hey, I just want to know the will of God. Most of the time, we're looking at that for specific circumstances in our lives. We go, okay, as we're we're younger, we want to know the will of God for 
where we ought to go to school, or whether we ought to go to college, what kind of job we ought to take, the kind of person we ought to marry, where we ought to move. We want to know the will of God in those areas of our lives. As we get a little older, that changes, and we begin to, to, to that morphs. Now we've got grown kids, and we want, to, we want to know the will of God in their lives, and we want to know what God's up to over there, and we want to know what God wants us to do as we get closer to retirement age. That doesn't necessarily mean closer to retirement I don't think retirement is a biblical concept at all uh, because we just kind of transition. We may leave this area of work in our lives, but we move to another area where God would have us to serve. But we're constantly looking for the will of God in our lives. And there's no substitute for knowing it. It gives us such confidence, such certainty that this is where God wants us to be. But honestly, if you want to know the will of God for your life, then you've got to know the Word of God. I want you to hear that. If you want to know the will of God, then you need to know the Word of God. Otherwise, we're just guessing. I mean, we, we, we might as well just take a dart board and put the options up there and throw darts until we hit something. We're just guessing if we don't know the will of God. We don't know the Word of God. We'll never know the will of God. And I think what we'd like is to have a fairy godmother show up and tell us, hey, boom, this is it. Or boom, that is it. This is where I want you to go. This is what I want you to to do. But God has kind of set up a different system. There are times where God does that and he makes his will completely known and we have great confidence and we move forward in that confidence. But what if we don't know the word of God? How do we measure what we believe God has said to us? How do we evaluate that? Where is the filter? Where is the plumb line that drops down that says this could be the way? Because listen, I've literally had someone sit, not in this church, but in a previous church, sit in my office and say, a married man say, I believe that it is God's will that I leave my wife and marry this woman. Where's the plumb line? Where's the, where, how do you get that? Now listen, it aggravates me when I walk in a room and a picture is out of kilter. Imagine how it must feel to hear that, to for God's ears to hear that. How out of kilter that is. And, and we want, we feel like, oh, well, I'll somehow I'll know it. You know, I'll, I'll wait, I'll just, you know, I'll open it, this Bible up and I'll just kind of flip through and, and I'll just close my eyes and go, boom. All right, now I know what God's will is. Uh, okay, this will help. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season and I will take away my wool and my flax. Hmm. I better try again, right? Is this a way to discern the will of God? No. That's not how you figure it out. Let me tell you how you figure it out. By daily, consistently, persistently going through, living in the word of God, letting God's word get into you. And it'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you act. And then when you are confronted with a situation, you will have much a much better, much greater opportunity to know, hey, this is the will of God for my life because I know it lines up with what he has already 
revealed. And if it's out of kilter, kind of got a good suspicion. It's not what God wants for my life. Nine times out of ten, when people come into my office and they go, hey, listen, I've got a situation I want to talk to you about. I've got a decision that I need to make, and I need some counsel. I need some guidance. They tell me the situation. I'll ask them, what do you think you ought to do? And they already knew. Because they'd already been in the will of God. And, it, and, and they knew that what they wanted to do, or what they, they, they felt at the moment was the best thing to do, they knew that somehow it was out of kilter with the will of God for their lives. For us to know the will of God, we don't get there by guessing. We, we don't get there by, by thinking really hard. We don't get there by human intuition. Oh, and for peace's sake, don't follow your heart. I know, that's a, I know that's what the world says. But the Bible says the heart is wicked. That if we follow our heart, we're, it's going to take us places God would never have us go. And so instead, we need to be in the will of God. Now, if we're going to know God, we're going to know his will, we're going to know his ways, then we're not going to get there by human understanding, human intuition. We need the word of God, but we also need the spirit of God. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Look at this. He, Paul's praying. He says, listen, here's my prayer. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. I want you to know his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is not human wisdom and understanding. This is not something I got from a leadership book over here or, or from a self-help book over there. This is something the Holy Spirit has been revealing to me. And this is the cool thing. Because sometimes you're reading God's word and you, you feel like, man, I keep butting my head up against the wall. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. When that happens, I've got this, I've got this secret I want to tell you. And I know it works because I've tried it. Ask God. Ask God to open your eyes to what's there. Ask God to let the Holy Spirit il- bring illumination to his word. Ask God. God, I want to understand. And listen, it may not be like a light bulb going off. It may not be that momentary thing. It may be that you have to struggle with that passage for a long, long time according to, to come to understand what God's will is. But there is spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding to be gained from understanding God's word. And the Holy Spirit can help us to do that. Now, I also want you to know, and this is important, that knowing God's will, that's important, but that's not the end of the equation. Look with me again in verse, verse 10. We're suppo- we should know God's will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, I want you to notice something to the Greek verbs here on bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge, those are continuous actions. These aren't one-time things, never to be done again. This is a continuous action that the Holy Spirit would be doing in us. You can be in Bible study seven days a week, and that's not a bad thing. But if that's it, then you're kind of short-circuiting the will of God for your life. God wants you not only to know His will... God wants you to do his will. James chapter 1, verse 22. You can write down that verse. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, listen. 
don't just be hearers of the word. Do what it says. As a matter of fact, he had something else in there. Hang on. He says, don't just be hearers of the word, deceiving yourselves. Do what it says. In other words, we can get so tied up just going to a Bible study on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and three on Sunday. We can get so tied up in going to come to understand God's word, but we don't truly understand God's word if we're not doing it. If, it's, if we're not living it out. That's one of the issues that, that we have as believers, that we read something and, and it dawns on us. We go, yes, that's God's will. That's a, that's a change I ought to make in my life, or that's something I ought to, that's something I ought to act on here, or that's something I ought to leave out of my life over here. But since we really don't want to do that, we just kind of ignore it. Now, we've understood God's word, but we haven't put it into practice. We've come to know his will, but we haven't come to do his will. But when we do, when we do, it brings delight to the heart of God. Look at that verse again. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that is to bring our lives in line, to line our, line our actions up with the will of God, fully pleasing to him. If you go away from here this morning thinking that what I'm telling you is that you need this checklist. Okay, if I do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, that God is just absolutely, you know, he, he, I, I've done what I need. I've earned my salvation. I've earned God's love. No, no, no. That's not what it's about. It's about a relationship. Some of you who've been in a relationship for a while, you know this. There are things that you do that, quite honestly, you don't want to do. But you do them because you know it will bring delight to your husband, to your wife, to your child, to your parent. You do it not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you know by doing this, you're bringing joy to them. You're bringing pleasure to them. You're bringing delight to them. That's what it means to be in a relationship. And here's the cool thing about it. When you see the delight in your husband, wife, child, parent, whomever it is, when you see their delight, what happens to you? It's like their joy is a flame and yours gets ignited by it. You yourself find joy, find delight, find pleasure in Giving another person joy, delight, and pleasure. It's a, it's a great equation. It works every time you try it. We are to live in such a way, not because we think God's going to strike us down if we, we get out of line, but because we love Him. And because we love Him, we want to please Him by knowing His will and by doing his will, there couldn't be any purer motivation than wanting to bring joy to the heart of God. So much of the unhappiness and lack of contentment in our lives is directly due to living outside what we know to be the will of God. I want you to hear this. 
so much of our lack of contentment, so much of the unhappiness and dis-ease we have in life directly due to living outside what we know is God's will for us. The, the thing I've discovered in this is that this is not only true spiritually, it's actually true mentally and physically. There are, when we know, when we live outside our values, the values that have been instilled in us by coming to know God and know his will and ways, when we live outside those values, it literally drives up our blood pressure. It causes anxiety in us. It causes anger. It causes all kinds of issues that you could go and medically prove. When we live outside what we know God's will to be, it makes us miserable people. You think of a time that you knowingly lived outside the will of God for your life. It wasn't a really pretty picture, was it? It will mess you up. And so, let me encourage you, when you know God's will, to do everything you can to bring your life in line with that will. Because it'll bring pleasure to him and it'll bring peace to you. Some of you are sitting out there and going, hey, wait a minute, Pastor. Living in the will of God is not that easy. Knowing God's will, sometimes I think I've got that. But actually putting it into practice, that's pretty hard. You need to understand I'm weak. I think God understands that already. You remember as Jesus came back and he saw his disciples, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying. This is right before his arrest and crucifixion. He's praying in the garden and his disciples, they just keep falling asleep. Jesus said, hey, look, couldn't you even hang with me for an hour and pray? But he acknowledged, hey, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. When we're trying to live the will of God for our lives, I'll go ahead and tell you, sometimes the spirit's willing and the flesh is weak. So, so how do we accomplish this? The good news is we don't have to do it by our own strength. And that's what Paul says here in verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, this is pretty cool. What this is saying is you don't have to do this by willpower. There's a bigger power. A greater power to enable you to live in such a way as to delight the heart of God. And God is giving you the power. He's making the power available to you. And it's according to his glorious might. Now let me ask you a question. Is there any weakness in God? Any shortage in his power? Does God ever get up on a Tuesday and go, you know what, I just kind of feel a little weak today. Maybe I ought to go work out. 
No. God's power is inexhaustible. Let me tell you the kind of power God has. Into complete darkness. He could say, light. And it was. Out of nothingness, he made all this, and he made us all hang together. I mean, it's not, we're not just falling apart. He's not only made us, he sustains us. This is the power of God, and it's a power that is available to us not to, not to do magic tricks, but to live in a way that brings him delight god gives us the power to do anything he calls us to do um i've i've had the privilege and we're going to share some of this information with you as a church so you can be praying uh, but there's a missionary family uh, uh carol they are in rankin myanmar okay myanmar but there, there's a, a Rankin is a, I think that's how you pronounce it, it's a group of people that they're working among them. And they have basically been told they've got to get out, uh, that they don't want their Christian work there, even though they're not only preaching the gospel, they're also doing works of mercy in the community. And, and, and it's, but they're telling them they've got to get out. Last night at midnight, we don't know the result. They actually took this to the town council for a vote, to the, to the town for a vote whether or not they should stay or go, and we don't know yet whether they should stay or go. But, but here you have people who say, hey, listen, God wants us there, and it, you know what? If God wants us to leave now, we'll leave. But we believe, and this is what came out in their newsletter, that they believe God can do anything, and whatever he does, they're content with it. And I want, can I be honest with you? I'm not like that every day. There are days when I believe God can can do anything, but I really am not real satisfied with what he chooses to do. I think that's just part of our human frailty. We have a God who's able to do anything, but are we content to to get in there with him and, and to go with him and to follow along with him, even if it doesn't go our way? But listen... If it's God's will, then God certainly has the power to accomplish that will. Listen, here's what we see in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who's called us by His own glory and goodness. And then this verse that we often see plastered on banners at football fields. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. Now, we may see it plastered on a banner on a football field. I'm not exactly sure that's what Paul had in mind when he wrote it. I think Paul would tell us, listen, if it's God's will, then he'll make the way. If it's God's will, he'll supply the power. He will give you everything you need for life and godliness. Well, we're going to move on here. He goes on, verse 11, he said, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And I pulled that part out because I want us to understand this. In some translations, 
the with joy or joyful, they'll move it over to the next verse that has to do with thanksgiving. Um, either way would be an appropriate translation, but I believe this may be the right way. Endurance and patience with joy. Endurance is bearing up under some great weight, and patience is long-suffering. And that's not always fun. Those of you who've had to endure, those of you who've, who've had a long period of suffering and you've had to exert great patience in that, it's, it's not fun. And I don't think God's telling us, hey, just put on a happy face and pretend that you've got no problems. It's perfectly acceptable for you to admit, hey, listen, I hurt today. I feel a great sense of loss today. I'm about at the end of my rope at work. It's perfectly acceptable for you to admit what reality is. But even in the midst of it, we can have joy. Why is that? Because our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Joy and circumstances aren't connected at all. That's why you could find Paul and Silas in the bottom cell of the prison, chained up, singing hymns and praising God. If, if they were, listen, they, if their joy was connected to their circumstances, they wouldn't be singing hymns, they'd be singing the blues. They're not connected. We can have joy in the midst of whatever our circumstances are, Because our joy is not found in our circumstances. Our joy is found in the fact that we are in Christ. That's a phrase that you will see throughout Colossians. We are in Christ and that he is with us, meeting our needs daily, whatever they may be. Or let me put it this way. We can have consistent and persistent joy in our lives when we discover this truth. Jesus is enough when we discover that jesus is enough then there's nothing that can touch our joy and then he goes on in verse 12 giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light paul began by giving thanks in this letter of colossians now he's calling on them to give thanks and he gives them a good reason because god has qualified you that is god has made you sufficient to stand in your his presence he's qualified you don't you didn't qualify on your own you didn't deserve to be there on your own but god has qualified you by his grace we have an inheritance with him and this is the way that peter put it in first peter chapter one Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's like it's locked up. The Fort Knox of heaven. It is kept in heaven for you who who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. There it is again. Though for now you may have to suffer, for, suffer griefs and all kinds 
of trials. So what we see here is that we can rejoice because God is with us, because God's meeting our needs day by day, because God's made us able to stand in his presence, and God has an inheritance for us when this life is through. Let me just sum it up here with these last couple of verses. Verse 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's delivered us. What does that mean? He has saved us. He's rescued us out of the domain of darkness and he has moved us, transferred us into the kingdom of of his beloved son. I do not have words to adequately describe how powerful that statement is. We lived in darkness and so often we didn't even know it. And through the work, the completed work of Jesus Christ, God, he didn't send two men in a truck. He sent his son who hung between two men on a cross to move us, to pick us up out of the miry clay, the darkness, the hopelessness, and to move. We didn't do this. It's like He picked us up in his arms and he moved us from the darkness and moved us into the light. He, I don't know if you've read any of these stories after the earthquake in Mexico City. These people were trapped in the rubble. They were trapped in darkness. It was absolutely hopeless. The best they could do was to tap on something in the hope that somebody could hear them. They couldn't move the rubble. They they had broken limbs. They had no water to drink. It was an absolutely, utterly dark, hopeless situation. And somehow in the midst of this, they see these concrete slabs begin to move and they hear these voices and then all of a sudden there's light. And hands reach down and help that victim out and bring them out of the darkness and into the light. And that is just a small glimmer of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's moved us from darkness, moved us into the kingdom of his son. We've left being enemies of God behind. We've become children of God through Jesus Christ. And in him we have redemption. That is, we are made whole. We are able to stand in the presence of God. And we've been forgiven of our sins This is the coolest thing. When teams win Super Bowls, World Series, all these things, what do they do? Their city gives them a big parade. And all those who won the championship ride on the back of these cars and ticker tape is flying from these windows of tall buildings. I've never once been invited to ride in that parade. It didn't matter who won. But Jesus has a parade. He's the only one that deserves to be on that float. 
He's the only one that deserves to have the accolades of the angels showered down on him. He's the only one that deserves that heavenly ticker tape. But because of what he's done for me, he reaches down and he says, Hey, Jimmy, you come right up here with me. You belong on this float, not because of what you've done, but because of what I did for you. You belong on this float, not because you loved me first, but because I loved you first. And I redeemed you, I rescued you, I delivered you from the domain of darkness. Come up here and ride in the light. Come up here and hear the accolades of the angels. Come up here and experience this ticker tape parade. You belong here because I brought you here. That's my story. For many of you, that's your story. You've come to understand that Jesus is enough. And in fact, he's the only thing that's certain that you can hold on to. And you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that when that parade goes down those streets of gold and Jesus rides triumphant through the streets with the accolades of angels, you know that you'll be with him. But some of you may not. You may not have that confidence. You may think, hey, this parade's going to pass me by. Here's the good news. That Jesus didn't just come to save preachers. He came to save everyone who was lost. And if you know you're lost this morning, then I want to invite you to come to Jesus who can take you from the domain of darkness and move you into the kingdom of light, who will reach down and pick you up, pull you up onto that float with him, say, here, ride with me. You belong with me. If you need to know Jesus is enough this morning, then I want to pray for you. And I'll ask everyone else if you just pray along with me. Heavenly Father, I want to pray. I want to pray for those who don't know this morning, who really don't have the confidence that uh, they belong with Jesus. They've never received him as Savior and Lord. They've never surrendered their lives to him. They've never acknowledged him as their only hope of salvation. And this morning, I want to pray. I want to pray with all my heart this morning that you're going to do a marvelous work, that you are going to be calling and drawing those who don't know you to you. Lord, that they would be willing to turn from their sins, turn from their selfishness, and turn to you, place their hope, their confidence in you, not only now but forever. And they'd be willing to declare that Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is enough for me. Lord God, I pray that this very moment, this very morning, you would move in hearts, drawing people to your son Jesus. Where I pray it in his name. Amen.